And welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we actually have one of my good friends on the show. He's a dope everything. He is a renaissance Negro. Um, he does absolutely everything under the sun. He's an amazing writer. He's been doing um, cultural and artistic uh, uh, things for a very long period of time and contributing to the culture all around. Um, he used to be on me with CNN, used to be on CNN with me often and hanging out on, on, on national news, but he knows about politics and he always, always, always is a brilliant writer, but none other than Keith Boykin. How you feeling today, man? I feel great, Picari. It's really good to be here with you this morning. Where are you located? That's a beautiful aesthetic. I'm in Los Angeles. I moved here a couple of years ago from New York. Oh, it's early out there too. My my bad. I didn't mean to get you get you this early in the morning out there in Los Angeles. That's all right. This is my second call of the day. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, my show is unique because we ask each one of our guests to walk us through the arc of, of their career. And I mean, Keith, you're you're basically a, a household name for those individuals who want to get in the realm of of communicating their ideas to the masses. And so whether or not you do it uh, through writing and plays or poetry or books or whatever it may be, talk to us about the arc of your career and how you ended up where you are right now, which is your new book, Why Does Everything Have to Be About Race? Yeah, well, I've had a long um, kind of uh, unusual career because I've done 10 or 12 different things in my life, uh, 10 or 12 different careers. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, went to high school in Clearwater, Florida, graduated from Dartmouth College, with a degree in government, I went to law school uh, at Harvard. Uh, Barack Obama was one of my schoolmates when I was there. Uh, I worked on, I think, six, five or six different political campaigns going back to the 1980s when I was in high school. I worked in my first congressional campaign, worked on a few presidential campaigns. And um, I, the last campaign I worked on, actually, <laughs> believe it or not, was well, the last campaign I worked on for a candidate as a, in a full-time job, I should say, was when I worked for Bill Clinton. Um, mm -hmm. And then Bill Clinton won, won the White House. I went to work in the White House as special assistant to the president, left the White House, went to uh, write my first book, uh, ran, ran a national black LGBTQ organization for three years, left that, and then taught at American University in Washington, D.C., Left that, moved to New York City, uh, was on a reality TV show on Showtime called American Candidate. And then I hosted a show on BET called My Two Cents. And then I was a political commentator for MSNBC and then CNN. Uh, and um, and now I have a new book called Why Does Everything Have to Be About Race? So that's a, before, a, we, before we get there, I want to want to get your your kind of 50,000 foot views before we get into race. And I think it'll build context before we get into book, excuse me. And I think it'll build context for your discussion that you have and what is a very, very good book. Um, shall I say, I mean, you all, you're, you're a very good writer. Um, I guess I'll ask three questions. One, have you always been a good writer? Is that something that you've always found to be a skill set or is it something you honed with practice over time or you just take writing coaches or what? <laughs> I can tell you this. I have not always been a good writer because I've, but I've been a, a long distance writer, I guess, you know, um, because I know this because, um, I've, was it last year or the year before I dug up an article I wrote 40 years ago. Um, uh, it was for the St. Pete Clearwater Times when I was a high school student. I was a columnist for the for the local newspaper. Uh, and it was an article about capital punishment or something like that. I think it was capital punishment. Um, and I used to write, you know, monthly op-ed columns. And I looked at it, I was like, oh my God, this is so bad. I mean, I agree with what I was saying still. Um, I've always been against the death penalty, but at the same time, the language I was using was so over the top and flowery. And just, I, was, I think I was living in a thesaurus to write, you know, as opposed to just sort of writing, you know, instinctively about what makes sense, what sounds natural. 
So um, I think I've learned. I've learned how I've evolved as a writer. Um, you know, I, I was a, a a school newspaper staff in in college, so I had to write newspaper articles every day, uh, and that was actually the best training for me. It was not, it was not so much the training of um, being in a in college or anything like that. It was a training of writing on, on a, for a on a daily basis for a, a newspaper uh, as a college student, covering local events, covering because I was in New Hampshire at Dartmouth College. We had all the presidential candidates who came in every so often, every four years for uh, primary season. So I had a chance to meet all the candidates, interview them, cover what was going on, and just keeps you on your toes that kind of daily writing daily writing process and having editors too, good editors. Um, talk to me about just how the landscape has changed. I'm not calling you old, but you're more seasoned than I. But talk about how <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you 58, kid? Yeah, I'm 58. You what you've been doing? Drinking your water and minding your business, huh? <laughs> Drinking water, right? Exactly, right. Look, how has the news, political, campaign landscape changed? I mean, you've been on MSNBC. You've you've been on CNN. You've worked on campaign. You're one of the few people right now. We have a lot of people on TV who ain't never worked on a campaign a day in their life. They just call themselves political strategists. Right. Drives me nuts. But talk to me about how that segment of our population has changed and how the news culture, political structure has changed over your 58 years of living. Well, wow, yeah, there's so many ways. I mean, first of all, we don't have as many gatekeepers as there used to be. So when I was um, first starting out. It was basically ABC, CBS, NBC, and then CNN was just getting started around 1980. But, uh, you know, Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and people like that, um, um, Peter Jennings, those were those were the, the newsmakers, the people who uh, who influenced uh, not the newsmakers, but the news uh, providers, the people who influenced the way we saw the world. Uh, and then we had, you know, the institutional legacy media and the print form, too, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, that kind of thing. Um, and we started to see this sort of, de de not, I won't say devolution or devolution, but a sort of change in the media landscape around the 1980s. You know, BET starts to come in existence in 1980. Uh, CNN comes in existence in 1980. Cable media starts in 1980. We have, we have USA Today, which starts around 1980. And then we start to see the, the disintegration of sort of the traditional media over time um, to the point where um now we have social media where everybody has a platform and the problem with that and there's good things and bad bad things with that the good thing is that there are fewer gatekeepers so a lot of the viewpoints that don't that weren't getting expressed before now do have a a, a venue where they can be expressed the problem with that is that not everyone has the same standards some uh people in the new media field uh, uh, hold themselves to high standards of the uh, of accountability and the information they deliver other people um you know aren't so clear about that. And let me be clear, we all make mistakes. People sometimes look at, you know, the New York Times printed a story that's wrong or CNN said something is wrong and they're, they're all corrupt. Well, you know, no institution is perfect. No media outlet is ever going to get it all right. The question is, are you going to hold yourself accountable when you do screw up? Are you going to apologize? Are you going to correct correct the record? Are you going to just pretend like it didn't happen? And, and that's an important thing. So I think that the media landscape is, has changed dramatically, you know, with the evolution of technology. But in terms of uh, the political coverage of, the, of, of what's happening, I think we're still being snookered by some of the same forces that took place uh, decades ago. I remember there was a famous... Uh, piece Leslie Stahl did in the 1980s. She was a CBS News uh, correspondent before she started working uh, for 60 Minutes. But she uh, she was a White House correspondent during the Reagan administration. And she used to do really tough, he hard-edged, heavy reporting, criticizing, so to speak, but uh, the Reagan administration for some of the flaws in the policies and the hypocrisy. 
And in one report, she mentioned the fact that, the, that Reagan was cutting the budget for a number of different issues for, for social services. But he was speaking at these events where it looked like he was supporting those exact same social services. And so she did this hard-hitting piece one day. And afterwards, she thought that the people in the White House were going to be pissed off at her. And she talked to, I think, I can't remember who the, who the communications director was at the time, maybe Lim Nofsinger or someone like that. But she talked to that person. She said this on the record. And, she's, and she said they were delighted by her report. They were so happy by it because even though everything she said was negative, the pictures were positive. They showed Reagan, you know, at, at openings of events and balloons and things like that. And the Reagan people realized something early on. A lot of people in politics uh, discovered afterwards, which is that uh, the pictures uh, have have a huge impact and they can outweigh the messaging that comes from from the written word or the spoken word. Uh, and so they learned in the in the 80s, there were three things that get covered in presidential campaigns, mistakes, attacks and pictures. And, you know, the media see one of those three things they're going to they're going to hone in on it. And um, and they managed to take advantage of that. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. You know, as we move into conversation about your new book that, like I said earlier, like everything you do is very, very well written. Why does everything have to be about race? You actually come from a background at Dartmouth and Harvard. Uh, in the frame of some of the lessons in your book, though, talk about Claudine Gay and your 50,000 foot view of what happened with Claudine Gay. Yeah, this one, I mean, you've, you've been watching this as close as I have, so you know what, what's happening here. Uh, I don't think it was about Claudine Gay. I don't think it was about um, Israel. I don't think it was about uh, uh, plagiarism. Uh, or about her qualifications or anything like that. It was all about attacking modern education, attacking liberal arts education, attacking DEI, attacking affirmative action, attacking any sort of sense of using education as a tool to, to change society for the better, to be more open and inclusive. That's what they're really warring against. And she became the uh, the obvious sort of... Uh, 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 focal point for their attack, for their criticisms. They were out to get her from the moment she was hired, regardless of the fact that she had a degree from Harvard, a degree from Stanford, a PhD from Harvard. She was the dean of the faculty at Harvard. Um, they were saying from the beginning that she was not qualified. They were questioning her PhD. Now, mind you, the reality is that 
there are several Harvard presidents who didn't even have PhDs, uh, including Derek Bach, who's one of the legendary presidents of Harvard from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, he didn't even have a PhD, but he was a white man, and that was acceptable. I guess nobody wanted to question his credentials. But here this established credential black woman comes along, and they want to pick her apart. And it very much reminded me of what they did to Katanji Brown-Jackson. Came in and imminently qualified. I mean, far more qualified than half of the, the current Supreme Court justices, but they still criticized her and said she wasn't prepared to be on the Supreme Court. It was just an affirmative action hire. The same way they did to Barack Obama when he ran for president, even though he had been the United States senator, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a, a, a state senator, a best-selling author, a constitutional law professor, a, a, a noted scholar, the first black president of the Harvard Law Review. But to them, he was just an affirmative action hire. And they created this whole sort of fake sense of meritocracy, which mm -hmm. we all know has never existed in this country, because even I mean, the, the best example of this is that the person who the, let's look at white America, the majority of white people did not vote for Barack Obama in either of his two presidential elections. Now, there are a lot of white people who did. So I'm not saying that everyone, but the majority of white people did not vote for Barack Obama in either of his two elections. In fact, we both know that the no Democratic candidate for president has won the white vote since 1964 when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights, Civil Rights Act. But Barack Obama didn't win the white vote in either of his elections. And then who did win the white vote in the following two elections was Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's a reflection of just how 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 cynically, grotesquely false this this meritocracy narrative is. Donald Trump, the first candidate who runs for president, the first candidate who actually is elected president, who has no political or military or governing experience whatsoever when he comes into office. No one else has ever done this before. Uh, and they they elect this guy, a, a game show host, just because he he feeds into their right wing narrative of white grievance politics, but not because he's qualified, uh, even though John McCain and others in, in 2008 spent a lot of time atta attacking Barack Obama as not being qualified. And then eight years later, they go pick the least qualified person to be can't to be president of the United States to be their candidate for the Republican Party. Hmm. Why does everything have to be about race? Let's talk directly about your new book. I think it's obvious what it's generally about, but how did you approach race in the moment we're in in this country in this book? Well, I didn't know what moment we would be in when I wrote the book a year and a half, two years ago, but it seems like it's, it's only gotten worse. I was thinking that... Um, you know, I wrote this book in the post-insurrection era, right after Donald Trump had left office, and um, the, the insurrections were still being rounded up. Um, there were there was the beginning of the process for uh, the the public hearings from Congress, which were still being resisted by Republicans. Um, we'd already gone through the two impeachment process, two impeachment trials uh, in the Senate, and and uh, the the proceedings before in the House. And it was there was a sense of sort of at that point of uncertainty where are we going to go uh, you know dr king I, I always like to quote this passage from dr king from his letter from birmingham jail he talks about the fact that time is neutral and we have to abuse disabuse ourselves the notion that time will automatically inevitably change everything for the better the reality is time can be used either constructively or destructively and so i think what uh what we learned is that during these past few years the forces on the right have been using their time very productively, very constructively to achieve their political objectives. And um, <clears throat> I think they were emboldened by things that have happened recently. They were emboldened by the Dobbs decision. Um, they are emboldened by having three Supreme Court justices, first of all, that Donald Trump appointed who helped to, 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 
to dismantle some of the uh, the the policies of the past 50, 60 years. They were emboldened by the Dobbs decision, which uh, took away women's rights to, to have autonomy of their bodies. Um, and they were emboldened by the attacks on voting rights uh, and the Supreme Court validated, validating that. They were emboldened by the Supreme Court taking away the rights of of of, of uh, people to have to, of states and, and lawmakers to create gun control legislation uh, and, and ordinances in their own communities to protect their citizens. So when they each step along the way, as they gain more power, they realize that they have more opportunities to, to take it to the next level and next level and next level. So they go after affirmative action. And then just last year, they take down affirmative action. I wrote the book before the affirmative action decision came down from the Supreme Court, but I anticipated it was going to be in there. So I included it in the in the draft. Uh, I Everyone knew what was going to happen. And then when the final version came down, I just I just updated it to, to be cor correct about what was said. But um, it's this evolution of attacks uh, attacking. A DEI, attacking critical race theory, attacking um, affirmative action, attacking even attacking uh, a black women's venture capital fund, the Fearless Fund in, in Atlanta, that's simply trying to help black women entrepreneurs. They're attacking that as unconstitutional. Uh, and this is what's so scary, I think, Bakari, because I think what we're seeing is a dismantling of, excuse me, a dismantling of, of the Reconstruction era. You know, the yeah. 14th Amendment in the Reconstruction period was adopted and ratified in 1868. It, it not only provided equal protection of the laws, but importantly, it created this 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 idea that it was designed to help black people. I mean, they, they the Reconstruction era Congress also created the Freedmen's Bureau, which was designed to help black people people who were who recently been emancipated they created a whole series of laws the civil rights act of 1866 and 1868 1870 1875 some of which were struck down by the supreme court but they created legislation designed to help black people after the civil war after re after hundreds of years of slavery and even after that um we had a hundred years of segregation and now we're at the point where they're actually saying that that 14th amendment is designed to create some sort of colorblind society, not to help black people, but to help anybody uh, prevent them from being racially discriminated against. And I, to a certain extent, there's some truth to that. The 14th Amendment does apply to everyone, but the purpose, the clear purpose of the 14th Amendment was to prevent discrimination against black people. So to see this grotesque perversion today where you have people who are arguing in court, including members of the Supreme Court, justifying the, the notion that somehow the 14th Amendment means that we should all just be colorblind, pretend that race doesn't exist, and anything that is designed to help Black people is the immoral equivalent of, of actions designed to hurt Black people or hurt people based on their race is, is, is patently ahistorical. And it deserves to be condemned, but that is becoming the norm. If they can strike down a law that, that helps uh, black farmers or, or, or a, an organization that's trying to, to help Black women entrepreneurs, what can't they stop? They can stop minority set-asides. They can stop scholarships to help black black and brown people. They can stop anything that's designed to, to move the ball forward. So people talk about reparations, though this is some sort of solution for the future. Not believe in reparations, but at the same time, there's no chance. Zero chance that we will ever have reparations, regardless of the political obstacles. Zero chance we will ever have reparations as long as there is a constitutional structure that is being set up in place today that says that anything designed to help black people is, is impermissible. How do you think um, or, or what do you think makes this book about race different than some of the other books you've read about how we understand and talk about race now? 
I think what's different about this book for me is that this is a book I kind of wrote for myself because I, you know, I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter um, and I still am on Twitter, but not as much as I used to be since Elon Musk took over. But um, I found that there was a lot of gaslighting taking place, especially in the past few years, racial gaslighting. Whenever you bring up racial disparities, people always say, you're playing the race card. You're a race hustler. You know, why do you keep talking about race? It's so frustrating to hear these things. And I've I've been arguing with people online about these things for years. Um, whenever I say something about Republicans and not being the party of Lincoln and Republicans um, being uh, beholden to racist policies, people always come back with the same tired tropes about, oh, well, the Democrats are the party of, of slavery and the KKK and, and the Republicans were the ones who freed the slaves and all this stuff. And it's just frustrating because it shows, like, do you think I don't know the history of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as a black person? You think we don't know that? Do you think black people are constantly choosing to vote for a party that supports slavery and segregation? No, obviously, black people are supporting the Democratic Party today because the Democratic Party has evolved from what it was before. I'm not saying the Democratic Party was ever perfect or that it is perfect today, but it has certainly evolved from what it was before. And the Republican Party has devolved from what it was before. And that that part is something that is still in denial. The whole fact that there was a Southern strategy, the fact that, that people in the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration acknowledged that, that Lee Atwater talked about it openly in an interview that was published in The Atlantic about how you can't say certain words anymore. So you start to talk about, about busting and then states' rights and then tax cuts. There's an evolution of how they use the language to help support the, the, the structure of white supremacy. But they still deny it. So I got tired of having to answer these questions over and over again. So the book actually started being gaslighted. <laughs> exactly. We're all tired of hearing these same things. Over. It's like, how many times can we have these debates? So, um, you know, so I started the book with a quotation from Toni Morrison uh, from a speech she gave in 1975 at Portland State University, where she says the function of racism, the very serious function of racism is distraction. They're trying to distract us. They want to keep us occupied with answering all these questions, proving again, over and over again. Yes, that was racism when Donald Trump said there are very fine people on both sides. Yes, it was racist when you were stopped by the police for, for driving down the street, even though you hadn't done anything wrong. Yes, it was racist when you're being stopped and uh, are being followed in the in the department store that you walk into just because you're black. Yes, it's racist when the taxi driver doesn't pick you up and goes and picks up a white person a few blocks down the road. The, we're not we're not delusional. We are seeing things and experiencing these things ourselves. And it, the fact that we talk about it doesn't mean that that's the cause of it. The fact that we talk about it means that we are tired of tired of having to live it and to experience it. So this book is designed for me, first of all, so I don't have to keep coming up and thinking about, okay, what was the answer to this, this lie again? What was the answer to that lie? What's the stats? So what's the facts? What are the, what are the documented evidence to prove this? So I just wanted to have it all in one place, one handy dandy place where I can say, oh, here, this is the answer. And I wanted to give that to other people too, so they don't have to keep going over and over again to, to debate these things. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Let me ask you a question that I've asked everybody, every author that's come on this show. But and I think it's it's a question that I very rarely if ever got asked when I was on my book tour doing these podcasts and interviews. So I, I developed it and I was like, this is a damn good question. But how, if at all, did writing this book change you? Hmm. That's a good question. That's a stumper. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah. So this is my seventh book. So mm. the writing of a book itself isn't what changed me, but I think what changed me with writing this book, and it did change me, is that it helped me to understand that what I was going through uh, wasn't just me. Like I said, I wrote the book for myself. But as I started to do the research and talk to other people, I realized that there are other people who are dealing with the same thing on a regular basis. So it's changed me to to let me know that I'm not alone, uh, to let me know that I'm not crazy. <laughs> and I, I'm not right all the time. I understand that. And there may be some instances where I, I misjudge things, as we all do. But I know that for the most part, that we're all experiencing this psychic trauma right now. Uh, because of this resurgence of racism in our country, this open resur- racism has never gone away, but this open resurgence of racism that has been uh, promoted by the leaders of the of the Republican Party uh, and the conservative movement, starting from Donald Trump on down. Uh, and I know that um, for me, um, it was kind of a, a fitting coda because you know I spent five years at CNN from I was there all of 2017 through all of 2021. Uh, so I was there through the entire Trump era, Trump administration era, at least. And during that time, I was I was exhausted every no. day. I was awake. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could have done it he- living here in L.A. because, first of all, I have to get up so early here. It's just I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm a late night person. I'm not a morning person. But uh, but yeah, if, if I get up at, at, at five or six in the morning, it's still like eight or, it's eight or nine in the morning already in the East Coast. So I always feel like I'm behind. But. I always felt like I was behind when I was living in New York covering Trump uh, in 2017 to 2021 because you'd wake up every morning and there'd be tweets from 4 a.m. or something like that. You got up in Mar-a-Lago or got up at the White House and started tweeting about some nonsense or creating new policy or telling us how uh, expressing his adoration for Kim Jong-un or something like that. And it was just madness and chaotic. And to have to keep track of all that, uh, that was so exhausting. So for me, the book, is sort of a fitting coda in that it allows me to sort of to let go of all that, uh, to sort of put it all out there and say, this is this is where we are out, where we are right now. Uh, and I have to say too, the publisher, 
I, st I think I was still suffering from a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder or post-Trump stress disorder because there was a lot more Trump in the book in the original version I submitted. And the publisher told me to take like 90% of it out uh, because A, we didn't know you know what was going to be what was going to happen with Trump in the future, but B, we wanted the book to, to be about something more than just Donald Trump because he's not the cause of this. He's just the current iteration of it. Yeah, no question. Two two quick questions for you. One is more important than that, but I'll get to the the, the least important question, but still a good one. Talk to me about just briefly. You know, this question of is a, is America a racist country has come up often to different politicians, and some of them have answered it in not succinct or efficient ways. Is there unwillingness to answer the question honestly? Um, does that What does that tell us about our, our politics today? I'm glad you asked that, because I, I saw you talking about this on CNN the other day. And, uh, you know, this all comes up in the context of Nikki Haley saying that America has never been a racist country. Which, which we is know is far-fetched and a lie. So let's let's deal with the truth. <laughs> is it a racist country? Right. So the, the 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 past is is a is a lie, obviously. So the question is, is it today a racist country? And I've seen people, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are not the only ones who say that. There are people in our party, including we know our, our vice president Kamala Harris, who's also said America's not a racist country. I don't know if she really believes it, but that's what she said. Um, but I do think the, the point, the underpoint, the undertone of your question is really the critical element here. Why do people feel like they have to say this? Um, and in the same way, I feel like Barack Obama had to wear a flag pin while he was president. Donald Trump didn't have to wear a flag pin, but Barack Obama had to prove his patriotism. Uh, Barack Obama couldn't say some of the things that Donald Trump said. Donald Trump said, oh, America, we're not saying anything. saying, you know, we're just as bad as Putin. We've got killers in our country. But Barack Obama could never have said that. I think this reflexive tendency to prove our patriotism by creating a whitewashed narrative of who we are and creating a whitewashed current narrative of how the past impacts impacts our present. Um, and so it's almost like you can't be accepted as a political candidate at high national office if you don't acknowledge that America is this wonderful country that is that is imperfect. You can say it's imperfect, but you can't say that we're racist because it suggests somehow that the, that the people are racist and that the structures are racist. And the truth is both are. But that's something that no politician worth his or her salt ever wants to admit at the national political level because there are repercussions to that. Yeah, it might apply, it might help your base if you're a liberal Democrat, but it's not going to help you re reach the persuadables who everybody is so determined to get. I'm not as convinced that they're as important, but that's what that's, that's a the whole that's a, yeah. That's, that's, a whole. A, that's a whole nother conversation. But that but that's the reason why we that's the reason why people say that. And um so then, then they, there's the other part of where they actually believe it. And I don't, you know, Kamala much better than I do. I, I don't, I don't know what her beliefs are on this, but I feel like you know, Barack Obama said things that I don't think he he fully truly believed. Um, um, but I feel like he had to say them. The one of the best examples, not about race, but the issue of, of gay marriage. You know, Obama was opposed to gay marriage when he first ran for president in two thousand eight, but he evolved in twenty twelve. That's uh, and, a quick a quick ass evolution. <laughs> I, I know, right? But, but I mean, I think we all knew he believed that all along, but he just felt right. like he couldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. I mean, it's it's kind of sad that we're at the we are at a place in our politics where we can't speak the truth, um, and uh, uh, it, yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it with that. We're, yeah. we're at that place. So, so look to wrap up this interview. My most important question for you is: When will the book be available, and how can people buy it? How how can people follow you on social media? Okay. Um, well, sort of two part to two parts. First, to answer what what I thought your question was going to be, um, in terms of other projects, I'm currently. 
working on a documentary about Carl Lewis, uh, which really? we've, we've, yeah, we've been uh, we've been working on it for a couple of years now. It was supposed to come out this year. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. Well, I'll talk about that another time. But uh, but you know who knows? It might happen this year. Uh, but it's it's a lot of work, uh, and you know it's a it's a great project. And working with uh, I'm an executive producer of it right now. Uh, but uh, it's a it's a new challenge for me uh, in a different different field. So I'm, I'm really excited, excited about that. Uh, in terms of the book, the book is called Why Does Everything Have to Be About Race? The subtitle is 25 Arguments That Won't Go Away. It's available online or at your favorite bookseller, wherever you want to go, independent bookstore, black bookstore. It's available any of those places. If they don't have it, you can ask them to order it, but usually they should have it because it's a new release. Um, and you can also get it uh, at my at the platform where uh, on my on my social media. Uh, which is located on, on all my social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever else you might find me. So, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm on tour right now. I, I had a stop in um, St. Louis on Wednesday, of Thursday of last week. I was in Los Angeles here on Saturday. I'm going to uh, Rutgers University on Thursday, New Jersey. Then I'm going to Philadelphia on Friday, D.C. on Saturday, Politics and Pros Bookstore. Uh, and then I go to, I forgot where I'm going after that, but a few more places, Atlanta, Miami, and uh, I can't remember them all, but I'll be I'll be it'll be in a lot of different cities. So check my uh, my website and my uh, my social media for the calendar. Go pick up Keith Boykin's new book. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thanks, Bakari. <laughs>